Welcome to the Ward Zero podcast, covering the civic issues you most want to talk about. You are now entering Ward Zero. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Ward Zero podcast. My name is Asmahan Razavi, and as ever, I'm joined by Darren Krause and Jeremy Zhao. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. We also want to thank our sponsors, Calgary-based startup Eat for Later. Check them out at eatforlater.com and Gateway Association Calgary and their new EDI employment hub, gatewaytodiversity.ca. So what is coming up this episode? We will have a few hot takes for you. And then we're going to get into the province and the reopening of the Municipal Governance Act. Then we're going to get to Calgary transit safety and changes that are coming and the Beltline protests uh, and the sort of back and forth between uh, the Freedom Convoy and some counter protests that are now emerging. So let's get to our hot takes. Jeremy, you have one. Do you want to go first? This is a kind of a weird hot take. You know, I think last week you and Darren alerted me to like a, a troll account that was like, pretending to be like me which was already like a satire account pretending to be a counselor that didn't exist and it got me thinking about kind of the step the sad state of twitter right like it used to be you could be very creative you could create these satire accounts to to talk about certain things or to make fun of certain issues or or i guess counselors to a certain degree as long as it's for fun but nowadays it's just very you know, trollish, you know, very mean spirited. It's not fun. And it's not even creative. I mean, that the individual or bot, I guess, whoever created this could have done something a little bit more inventive and creative. But it's just, it's just sad to see what Twitter was like back in 2009 versus what it is now, which is a, a dumpster fire. I just want to say there is a bright spot to all of this. Uh, you have clearly endeared yourself to at least one city hall journalist. And hopefully Adam McVicker doesn't mind me poking fun at him, (laughs) but he did record a vote at 13 to three the other day instead of 12 to three. So clearly you must've got your vote in there somewhere. Oh, he knows that he's, he's just, he's just kind of like putting his blinders on saying there is no 15 counselor, but he knows in his heart. (laughs) I have a couple of hot takes and the first one, (laughs) The first one is not really a hot take. I just want to acknowledge that, um, you know, Calgary and Alberta has a really big Ukrainian population and that it's been a tough, uh, a tough time for people who whose heritage is Ukrainian um, and who are dealing with seeing their their homeland being invaded. So I just want to, you know, acknowledge that. And and I do kind of want to tie that into your conversation about Twitter, Jeremy, because um, I think this is like a really interesting moment where we're seeing a war being live streamed on Twitter in such an interesting way. Um, and I think that that's like really making it such an immediate kind of narrative for us where we're, we're knowing what's happening right away. Uh, we're seeing things, we're seeing, seeing stories about people standing up in a way that we haven't really before. Uh, and part of that I think is, is the access to social media, which is, which is kind of interesting. 
If, um, if I could just build on that really quickly, because it's one of the things I've noticed as well, Asmahan, that this war, and I don't think the Russians accounted for this, that the social media community was going to rally behind Ukraine and help fund them. Um, also, the group Anonymous getting together and debilitating uh, Russian infrastructure, YouTube shutting them down from, from gaining any money, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all of the, the media stations shutting down Russian propaganda. I don't think for one moment that they thought that there would be this concerted effort outside of military and guns and bombs and all that stuff to actually try to prevent them from winning this war. My my friend made me laugh and said, I've never seen Elon Musk fanboys and haters come together when he decided to like just direct all the Starlink satellites towards Ukraine right after they were shut down. It was a hilarious comment. Yeah. And that was in response to, I think, a request from one of the Ukrainian ministers who engaged in like Twitter diplomacy by tweeting Elon Musk to help uh, get that internet satellite up. So really interesting to see how a war is playing out um, with this kind of social media environment. My next hot take is just, I think we're in this moment and we have been for a while where we're seeing an almost breakdown of trust between police and the citizenry. And there are a few instances of this that have happened in the last little bit. Um, Particularly, I want to say with BIPOC communities in Edmonton, we saw a talk of a critics list coming out I saw Bashir Muhammad, who is a well-known activist in the Black Edmonton community, saying that he was on this list, identified as a critic. A few others have come out. There was an Edmonton city councillor who I think uh, there was a complaint lodged against by the police. And it's it's really, I mean, it sort of reminds you of the Shannon Phillips and the Lethbridge police uh, incident, which which is ongoing. We also saw that a black man was killed in the Northeast a short time ago, and there was a whole police commission hearing about it. There, 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 you know, there's a lot of facts that one needs to go through. But what I thought was really interesting was the police response, which talked more about the police dog that was injured than the um, black man that was killed. And I think those kinds of things don't exist in a vacuum and, and contribute to this. Um, lack of trust that is getting worse and worse. And that was truly exacerbated by the Freedom Convoy, which, you know, had a lot of people wondering why people who were part of that convoy were getting away with, it seemed like, a lot more than other folks had gotten away with. So it's it's definitely, I think, um, a relationship that is breaking down. So we're going to get into our first segment, and I will say that um, Darren and Jeremy, we kind of were, I think, fortune tellers in our last episode because we were talking a lot about, you know, the province versus the city. And so Premier Jason Kenney came out and said that he is going to introduce legislation amending the MGA to remove the ability of cities to implement their own public health rules. And this is presumably in response to a discussion around Uh, you know, the province removing the vaccine passport, the province removing uh, masking requirements, and cities across the province having to decide whether they would implement their own type of vaccine passport or whether they would uh, continue uh, masking bylaws that exist uh, or existed, I should say, um, in various places across the province. The Premier said, we are concerned that a patchwork of separate policies across the province could lead to greater division 
confusion, enforcement difficulty with no compelling public health rationale. And I'm just going to editorialize here because uh, I found the last part especially rich, considering that the um, mask mandate was, uh, you know, kind of Dina Hinshaw alluded to it not really being removed for public health reasons. So kind of rich coming from him. Darren, Jeremy, what, what do you think? What's going on? We were talking about this kind of like province versus municipalities uh, tug of war, and, and here it is. Let me jump in to play the devil's advocate here. Look, we don't need cities having their own rules. It's not as though with the, the public health situation, it, it is easing considerably here. If it ramps back up, perhaps we'll see public health restrictions back in. But but given the situation, I'm going to take so much heat for this. <laughs> I said devil's advocate, people. Do you believe what you're saying right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I'm, I'm just trying to give a different perspective. If we don't have provincial public health restrictions, the city of Calgary, I'll speak for the city, well, not speak for the city of Calgary, but I'll speak about the city of Calgary. We aligned everything with the province. Yeah, it was because maybe we didn't know what kind of data we were going to get. We already aligned it with the province. So what does it matter here? Like, I mean, we're already with the province. And if Calgary's not an issue, and many of the other, most of the other municipalities aren't an issue, number one, why does a premier need to think that he has to do this? But also, why are cities making such a big stink about it? Well, let's hear what Mayor Gondek has to say about what the city could be could be doing with the province instead of reopening the MGA. So at a time that we should be focused on municipal provincial relationships that help us understand how we are going to manage the emergency and transit operating funds, how we're going to manage affordable housing, how we are going to help people in situations of mental health crisis. Instead of any of those things, we are talking about masks. We're talking about opening up an act that we as municipalities have begged to have modernized for years so we could do things like having a progressive taxation system in municipal government rather than the regressive property tax system you see. But no, we're going to open up the MGA to talk about masks. So Jeremy, I mean, there's a lot that the city and the province could be doing to to work together as as the mayor said. What do you think? You know what's interesting? And, you know, maybe I'm going to almost side with Darren here is that whenever it's a (laughs) whenever it's a conservative premier doing something that, uh, quote unquote, intrudes onto the jurisdiction of the city, we we make a huge fuss about it. But I haven't seen a lot of coverage or even protests against, you know, the B.C. government mulling over um, overriding local municipalities because they aren't putting enough affordable housing. And we know how zoning rules and debates go with a lot of nimbyism, a lot of like pro and against crowds when it comes to putting affordable housing in increased density. But, you know, the, the thing that's transpiring out of BC is huge, I would imagine, from a city's perspective, because that's what a city does. It deals with zoning bylaws, it deals with land use uh, designations, yet, you know, none of the progressives that I see or anybody in general are really commenting on how provinces are 
kind of going, well, you know, as a city, I appreciate what you're doing, but it's not enough or it's it's not to our liking. So I do feel that there's a huge disparity or contrast when it comes to more conservative premiers versus more, uh, we'll call it quote unquote, progressive premiers. First of all, Jeremy, it's because in Alberta, we're under siege. Okay. We can't focus on. Oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. We've got a lot going on here, but I think also it's really interesting because at the start of the pandemic and I, you know, I was living in in Vancouver at the time. So you'll both have to like, correct me if I remember this correctly, but um, the premier was actually downloading responsibility onto the cities and being like, no, we're not going to do this as a province. So Hey, cities, you take it away. If you think that you, if you, you need to implement public health uh, measures, then go ahead and implement it. And so now there's this about face, interestingly, like about a month away from his leadership review. And I think it's hard not to take a lot of the actions that this government performs as, you know, potentially more political in nature than public policy driven, um, especially considering that about face. And I will say, like, I don't really think that this makes sense for a number of reasons, even when it comes to COVID. I know, I think I remember that like, you know, Dr. Hinshaw and others kind of rejected any sort of like regional approach to COVID. But I mean, we do know, for example, that like vaccination rates are not even throughout this province. So if we do see another wave come by, God forbid, in the next few months, and there are areas of this province that are much more highly vaccinated than others, then rather than having cities or towns that are like, excessively impacted being like, Hey, let's maybe implement masking. Let's maybe implement this. We're going to have another like province wide. uh, Well, not that I have any faith that that would happen, but like another kind of like province wide directive that would require all of us to once again, abide by public health measures. Like it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, and uh, I'm wondering about what other bylaws might be impacted. And I think so is another counselor. So let's hear from, um, Councillor Penner, who who has some thoughts on that. It is my understanding that the City of Calgary has a number of bylaws related to the health and safety of citizens, things like waste management, uh, 911, speed limits, smoking, water and waste management. Am I correct that a good number of our bylaws deal with the health and safety of citizens? Thank you for the chair to Councillor Penner's question. I believe the general answer would be yes, but I would defer to Ms. Hart from our law department who is with us today if Ms. Hart is able to comment. Please join us, Ms. Hart. Uh, yes, through the chair, it's Amanda Hart, um, attending on behalf of Jill Flowen and the law department here. You're correct in that um, we have a, a number of different bylaws that would be impacted by any MGA amendments that broadly define uh, public health orders or public health impacts. So I think it is an interesting question. I mean, what other things could be implemented by a change like this? I mean, we just had a fluoride plebiscite um, and reintroduced fluoride into our water. Um, I don't know, Darren, Jeremy, what do you think? Well, today the uh, administration they they talked about it uh, because they too were concerned. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pull up a Livewire Calgary article here. Um, yeah, so so as Councillor Penner had mentioned, uh, speed limits, smoking bylaws, water wastewater management, uh, and of course you heard the city's response there as well that there are a number of different bylaws. So. It, 
again, you know, going back, playing a little bit of, of devil's advocate here, I don't actually think that that's what the province intends. The concern is, is that it could be a slippery slope. You open the door to this today and you, you set a precedent today, then perhaps there is a government down the road or a leader down the road who is like, no, nah, man, we don't want fluoride in the water. Um, we're going we're gonna to change our public health rules around fluoride. Now, anybody who's got fluoride in their water is in contravention of the, the Municipal Government Act because they're doing this now. So, so there are con uh, concerns there. But I want to go back for a moment to the political aspect again, because what was interesting, and maybe some listeners will find it ironic, um, the Premier, again, said today that he desired unity and clarity since there was no public health reason to continue with restrictions. And he said, I, and I quote, what I think we now see is an effort by a very small number of people to politicize this. We should not allow politicians at any level to use COVID policy as a political tool to make political points. Newsflash, Jason Kenney, COVID has been political since about month three. And he made it political. For goodness sake, we had like a crazy wave over the summer, you know, when we decided we were going to be open and like forget that the rest of the world was dealing with a pandemic. And then all of a sudden he was missing for how, God knows how many weeks. Um, and our hospitals were, were you know, um, were filling up our doctors and nurses who have been under immense strain, you know, for the last two years had to contend with that. People can't had their surgeries canceled. I mean, I mean, we, we talked about former counselor Davison, who was talking about his daughter's kidney surgery being delayed. There were so many stories that came out about people having to deal with, you know, cancer that became uh, deadly and, and metastatic because of a delay in surgery. So he politicized it, please. Like, let's not pass on the, let's not pass the blame there, Jason Kenney. If I had had to just quickly bring you know, the talk back to like MGA, I think I think those who criticize the provincial government for 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 you know amending it uh, have to be careful because we seem to still pick and choose, right? Like at one point we had asked the mean uh, the municipal uh, uh, affairs minister to intervene with Sean Chu, right? Does that bite us, you know, later on? Right. If let's say the provincial government in Alberta does the same thing in BC, where they're saying we, we don't have enough affordable housing, so we're going to intervene in your uh, jurisdiction to add more, you know, would the more left-leaning or progressive councillors in Calgary, for example, would they be toning down their rhetoric a little bit? Because that would be something I would assume that they would want to see more of, but they always need those eight votes in order to pass something, whereas the province can come in and override and go, well, you know, this, this zoning, we're just going to override and we're going to do something else with it. So I think we have to be very careful as well, especially with progressives who kind of pick and choose at times, you know, as to which parts of the MGA they want to open back up or which parts of, you know, asking the province they want to do, they, they want to intervene in certain uh, issues. Great point about Sean Chu. Right. We're just picking and choosing and it just seems it's a slippery slope the other way too, right? Like I, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer. I'm just saying we tend to kind of uh, look away at certain regards. And then in other ones, we're very adamant that, you know, the premier is doing something wrong, which he honestly isn't. He's doing what a province 
legally and constitutionally can do. Well, I will say that, you know, some of us have been advocating for city states. So. Have you played Civ 5 yet? Have you even downloaded a game yet? I, oh, I wow. still don't know what that is. So we're going to move on to our second segment, which is around safety uh, for Calgary Transit. And uh, this, you know, recently came up, um, there have been some social media posts, uh, including something that was posted on Reddit at the late night C train commute posts, I don't know, or like subreddit or whatever they're called, I don't know, that was essentially talking about, you know, uh, someone feeling unsafe and uh, on transit. And we know that there has been a decrease in ridership throughout the pandemic because of the pandemic and as well as, you know, more instances of, of I, that were, I guess, you know, affecting people's feelings of safety. Both Councillor Wyness and Councillor Sharp uh, came out to to address this and and uh, we have some audio on this. So so let's hear from that. Um, but overall, um, there was obviously, I would say, a, a, a stance, substantial increase in our uh, overall call volume, sort of the beginning in and around um, sort of the March of 2019. Um, and, and that probably, uh, if I can probably put it in perspective, I think back in 2017, so, so kind of give it a five-year period, we were probably at about 29,000 um, calls for service uh, overall for Calgary Transit. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the end of 2021, we were probably around about, I, just off the top of my head, it was about sort of 59,000 uh, um, 59, calls for service. So we saw, saw around about 51, 50, 50% increase in, in, in calls for service over that period. And that large a sort of spike occurred around from the sort of 2019 uh, uh, ahead to 2021. So uh, it really sort of connected to uh, the COVID pandemic as well as the, the growing uh, opioid uh, crisis. So it's something that we, we have been um, certainly concerned about and paying attention to. As to the kind of specific breakdowns as to um, uh, how much of that call load or social disorder to uh, what we call a check on welfare where we we have reports of someone passed out at a, at a station, whether that be through an, an opioid uh, poisoning or uh, maybe a medical uh, event. Uh, I don't have those kind of specific numbers, but collectively, I would say 70, probably, probably about around about sort of 70% of that increase was uh, around either um, one of the two of those scenarios. So social disorder or um, sort of a, a possible opioid overdose. Yeah, so that was Samuel Hope. He's the manager of safety, security and employee training at Calgary Transit. And and as you heard there, I mean, there's they, they've been obviously responding to a number of situations that that maybe number one you know much like the calgary police service when they're dealing with some of these social and mental health calls that they're not totally the or the typical police officer isn't totally equipped to deal with and so when you have that and then you compound it with the volume of calls like they're double what they were back in 2017 so over the past five years they've gone from 29,000 calls to about 59,000 calls so I mean, there's obviously an issue there. It is really great to see that they're working with Calgary Police. They're working with 
the dope team. Uh, I believe Sam had told me that they actually have a dedicated group now that is working specifically on uh, dealing with unhoused Calgarians, mental health and addicted Calgarians uh, who are who need to find services. So they're so they're trying to find ways to move those folks into the services that they need. But when I take a look at this issue and I've asked about this, and I, I'd love your thoughts on it. We've got a chicken and egg situation here. I know that we want to treat the situation with kid gloves. We don't want to just push the problem out. We don't want to enforce our way out of this, which none of the folks wanted to do. But on the other hand, going the social services route is very complex, very time consuming, and like it is a slow moving ball. And I think we need to get people back on transit because, I mean, going back to our, our previous uh, or our conversation that is going to come up about the budget, Calgary is not getting any money for transit shortfalls. So they're seeing millions of dollars that they're losing because of a lack of ridership in the city here. So like, what, what do we do? Are we okay with enforcing and moving these people off in order to create a safer environment to bring ridership up, which then in turn, hopefully starts to maybe just by displacement, you know, that, that, um, that crowd effect sort of move some of the social disorder along. You know, the live wire story was, was quite good. And I, and I thought that, um, <laughs> did you like that plug, Darren? <laughs> uh, I thought that, you know, both, uh, I think especially Councillor Winus really addressed that. I will say that I think it's really interesting in Calgary. Like I grew up in Toronto and took the TTC my whole life. And um, that is a transportation route where you can be sitting next to Drake because <laughs> it is Toronto. Uh, and you can be sitting next to people from like a variety of income brackets. And when I moved here, I was really interested to see that that kind of um, universal, universal, uh, desire to take transit was not really a thing here, at, at least in, in my experience. And I, and I, you know, part of the pandemic used to take transit a, a few times a day. Um, and it is really in, in a lot of cases here, some of, some of our most vulnerable, um, some, you know, uh, yeah, definitely some of the mo most vulnerable communities. I think you're right that we need to do things to incentivize more people to take transit so that that crowd effect is there. But I don't know that like enforcement is going to really be what makes people feel safer on transit. Because again, going back to my hot take, a lot of communities don't necessarily feel safe seeing, you know, more or uh, more enforcement on trains. Is that really going to make you know, members of certain community feel safer. I don't know. So it's, it is, it is a really tricky situation. And it's one of those things where that hard work, I think of like addressing the social issues need to be done, but in the interim, what is it that we do? I mean, I would just love to see the city and councillors make a real concerted effort to like get more people back on transit, right? Like we actually have a great transit system. Like, I don't know when I used to take the TTC in Toronto, literally every day I would experience like one hour delays that were brutal. If I had to go take an exam, I would leave at 6am to make sure that I could get to school for my 9am transit. And I lived like 20 minutes away from school, just FYI. But I've never had that experience of like delay in Calgary. Our transit system is fast. It's clean. It's you know, fairly accessible. So I feel like we need some like transit ambassadors to get people really excited about taking transit. 
uh, and move us to, you know, move us to like C train. I don't know, maybe like come up with a C train mascot or something like let's do it. For those of you listening, you don't know that this is the first time that we've really been on video. And as Esma is describing her love for our train system, Jeremy and I are kind of sitting there going, hmm, we're just wondering if Esmahan is running the same. <laughs> She's like the luckiest person in the world to never experience. You know, I grew up with uh, Calgary Transit. You know, I took it as part of the the bus system for uh, high school, university. I go to work. You know, maybe maybe there's like you know we live in different places, but my experience has been. Usually it's okay, but you know, winter when winter hits, it's less than ideal. Every time you know people talk about Calgary being a world class city, I I kind of disagree with you, Esmahan, on like how good our trend. I do feel it's poor because most of my friends, most of the people that I know, they drive. They're not going to take transit. They're only forced to because honestly, they're probably, you know, in that lower, lower income bracket, and they're forced to do that. And I feel that, you know, we have in our notes here, chicken and egg, it's like, as the situation degrades, people are just going to not want to take transit, because why would they when they have the comfort of their cars now, and they don't have to be around the masses, particularly with COVID. I just, you know, growing up and, and just seeing how transit has evolved, it, it just doesn't seem like the city really has a long-term plan. They have a plan. They have a transit system for the sake of transit, not because they have some really big vision that they really intended to follow. I mean, you know, there was the whole thing in 2010 with passing of the, uh, of the Municipal Development Act and the Calgary Transportation Plan. I get it. But in reality, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can agree fully with, you know, that our transit system is great. I will, I will just add a caveat. Sorry, Darren. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, our system is definitely not as accessible as other cities. I mean, the fact that we don't have a train to the airport is like ridiculous. And I have been in a situation where I basically just used the C train and didn't really have to use the bus. So that definitely colors my experience. We need, you know, this is why I think we need the green line and both um, arms of the green line, because there are, you know, portions of our city that are completely lacking in any kind of transit infrastructure. But I feel like for us to be able to get that, we need people to convince people to use the transit that we have now, because one of the easiest arguments that people make against any more transit infrastructure is, uh, well, nobody uses it now. Um, but feeling unsafe on transit is definitely going to minimize people taking it. I mean, in I don't know, uh, I didn't grow, grow up here, so I don't know what it's like for people to put their kids on the bus. But, you know, in my high school, in my middle school, people took the TTC to school. People took the bus to school. People took the streetcar to school. I don't know if parents here feel comfortable putting their children on a C train and like sending them to whatever class, whatever school they go to or whatever uh, bus will take them to whatever school. So, I mean, yes, that's why I do think that security issue is important. And I mean, I, Darren's idea about like, you know, that kind of getting crowds of people together so people can feel more safe, I think is hugely important, but um, we'll see if it happens. So I think great is relative. And the reason why I say that is because depending on how you use transit and and if you are in proximity to transit lines or if you don't have to switch train lines and and whatnot, 
or if if frequency isn't a big deal for you, then I think you know Calgary's transit system is is very effective. Just to bring it back to the whole safety aspect, and 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 I want to tie the two together: the efficiency, the efficacy, the ability for people to get around does not help this safety situation. And because of the pandemic, we've reduced routes, we've reduced the hours. So therefore it makes it less convenient for people. And now people don't want to take it because, well, now they have to wait instead of 10 minutes between trains, they have to wait 30 minutes or or, uh, or between buses rather. They have to wait 30 minutes between buses and they're just like, well, you know what? I'm going to find a different way to work. I'm going to carpool, which is not a bad idea, or I'm going to take my vehicle. It's not an either or situation necessarily when we're talking about that convenience aspect. I know it it feels to the listener, maybe we went a little bit off on a tangent, but I think it's all tied together. That convenience aspect coupled with the safety is, is a real double whammy for Calgary Transit in bringing ridership up. I'm going to take us into um, our next segment, and that is the protests that we've been seeing in the Beltline. So uh, I'm sure everybody knows that since the Freedom Convoy started, um, the Beltline on Saturdays has been taken over by a Freedom Convoy, and a lot of people are upset about feeling trapped in their house uh, on Saturdays. And in response, this weekend, there were a number of counter-protests. Uh, and like, I think it was kind of disturbing actually, that there was a smoke bomb thrown at the counter protest by, I think a member of the freedom convoy, a lot of tense feelings, a lot of anger from people who live in the belt line. If you have friends and, and I do, there are people who are like just enraged that they can't leave their homes on Saturday. I know that I don't go to 17th on Saturday. I think we have a, a clip from counselor, uh, Walcott who, who sort of has, um, something to express about, you know, his thoughts here. Yeah, I mean, for me, it starts with a very challenging question of purpose behind the protest, because while there's no one, as someone who's protested many times in my life, no one will fight anybody's ability to protest that freedom, it's, it's there. But purpose behind it, the purpose behind it, that's what drives how people respond, the purpose behind it, the sentiment, the rationale, what the demands are, and so on. I think what we've all seen is that the Freedom Convoy and and much of the Freedom Protests, the purpose is unclear. It's it's changing. I mean, today, for example, is is the end of the restrictions in in Alberta, like, as a whole. So if there is one on Saturday, what's it for? So has anyone, I mean, Jeremy, I know you're not here, so maybe this doesn't necessarily apply to you, but has anyone gone uh, to 17th on, on Saturday and, and seen what it's like? Come on, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, uh, I had no idea that there was a counter protest this past weekend. Um, I actually was up in Edmonton anyways. Uh, but when I saw it, I was actually I was actually kind of shocked. And and if I could just for a moment, I want to take the race aspect out of it. I just get the sense that if this was a counter protester who tossed a smoke bomb at the protesting crowd, 
That person may have had a knee in their back. They would have been handcuffed. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's just me being like a little bit. I, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's a totally unfair comment and I'll probably take heat for that too. But I just feel like there's maybe a little bit of a double standard there. I do know, and I will say, uh, the Calgary police confirmed for me that the smoke bomb did come from the main protest and it was thrown at counter protesters and there is an investigation. But I think what it speaks to is that double standard of of violence or potential violence or intimidation. And it's one thing to allow the protests to go on. It's completely another uh, to allow something like that to happen. So I do hope that charges come from it, but I can only imagine what that might have looked like if it was the other way around and the counter protesters had done something to the main protest crowd. Um, you're definitely not the only one who feels that way. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. I don't think, I, I think most people think that that would be the case. I mean, the fact that like for weeks on end, this has been happening in the Beltline, one of the busiest parts of our city, people are um, not able to go to any of the restaurants. People are not able to go to like any of the, you know, these small local businesses that we're all encouraged to shop local at. Um, and people are trapped inside and subjected to like, horrific honking and whatever it is that's going on now and nothing, nothing happens. Someone throws a smoke bomb at a counter protest and, you know, we see such a delayed reaction. Like it really, really enforces this idea of a double standard. And it's super sad to hear, you know, people like yourself as Mahan, who's, who's avoiding 17th Ave, you know, for me, 17th Ave was kind of like the, the, the heart of the city, so much activity, you know, so much pedestrian life. And if it's unfortunately being overrun by, you know, protests and tensions and emotions, it's just, it's just kind of uh, a little bit sad to hear about that as an individual who, you know, is no longer in the city and, and can know still very clearly, you know, going out and chilling on 17th and, and being a millennial and having my coffee, right? Like it's, it's kind of sad to see it that way. You know, I also linked a, a, an article kind of in our chat uh, about, you know, what the police actions were when there were some uh, pro-Palestinian kind of rallies a couple of years ago, right? There were instant tickets. You know, some people were driving on the wrong side of the road, probably shouldn't do that. It's probably not advised, but there's a stark, we'll call it perception of when certain groups do something versus how other groups do certain things and the consequences that come out of that. You know, the Coots border is another great example of what at least I would feel as an individual to be that double standard that you've been talking about, Darren. So I just want to ask you both, uh, because Courtney Walcott in his clip brought it up. We've got no provincial public health restrictions now. Should we, would it be reasonable to expect that there be no protest in the Beltline this Saturday? No. Yeah, and I was saying that. When was this ever about public health restrictions? I mean, you know, I think it is so, and first of all, I will say that both Courtney Walcott and Heather Campbell wrote really good pieces 
uh, about the underlying motivations or, or, you know, their analysis of the underlying motivations um, around the convoy. And, and I think, you know, in, in Courtney Walcott's piece, there was a lot around the sense of like alienation and stuff that's grown a lot greater during the pandemic. You know, uh, Heather Campbell talked about the, the white supremacy inherent to a lot of this. And I think the other thing too is, I mean, it is so tough to watch these groups claiming to be oppressed when we are seeing people dying for freedom in Ukraine. I mean, like the contrast could not be more stark. And so I think it is going to be very shameful if this protest continues on Saturday, which it will, which it will. But to say that we are living under like martial law or under an undemocratic government when, you know, there are so many parts of the world uh, and we are we are really witnessing it right now and where people are dying for freedom. I think it's just so beyond the pale and unacceptable. And it is a total lack of awareness that these people have the privilege to protest in a way in, that is so safe where a lot of other people would be subjected to much greater penalties and, and excessive force by uh, policing forces than, than they are. That's for sure. Well, did you see how quickly the protesters in some of Russia's cities were rounded up just after the Ukraine invasion started. Like it, some people were being arrested right outside their doors. I think, you know, I mean, that just underscores your point, Esmahan, that there's a there's a real sort of privilege aspect to all of this. And uh, one one wonders where they get this notion that our freedoms have been taken away. Yeah, I will say, you know, um, when I was a kid, we we lived abroad. My, my father's family lived in the Middle East. And every time, even when I was like five or six years old, my father would like tell us, don't say this on the phone. Don't say that on the phone. Because we knew that like our phone calls were being listened to and that it could have like a real impact on his family if I or my or my brothers said anything stupid. That is what like censorship is. That is what, you know, fear is. And of course, it's, it's, it's an even greater degree what we're seeing uh, happen in Ukraine and, and what, it, what goes on in other parts of the world that is like uncovered. And so it's just this like lack of awareness that I think really like sticks in people's craw, if that is the expression. But I mean, do you both think that we're going to see protests on Saturday? Well, I think one of the, the big things is that they want all restrictions removed. So kind of the next argument they're going to say is, well, you know, BC still has restrictions. So we're going to keep protesting so that our fellow BCers can get their freedoms back because we still have our vaccine mandate here. Uh, the, sorry, the passport mandate. We still have the, the mask mandate here. And one of the interesting things with uh, BC right now is, you know, they'll probably drop them. Dr. Uh, Bonnie Henry predicts that they'll be back on in the fall time based on kind of what she's seeing or the, the potential to have them reinstated in the fall just with the natural cycle, I guess, of COVID now. To your point, Esmahan, and to Jeremy's for that matter as well, that like even one of the Facebook comments that we got on, on our story, it indicated that there are still restrictions in place. A trucker still need to have double vaccinations or, or whatever to cross the border. There are still some sort of travel restrictions when you go internationally and whatnot. So, so I think, I guess, yeah, is the answer to your question is there's probably going to be a protest. And I think that it's likely due to some of these lingering restrictions that are still in place. Well, are they decreasing, I guess, is is my question. Like, I, I know, for example, in Victoria, they are slowly starting to 
be smaller and smaller, but they're, they are still ongoing, I would say. I guess we'll find out on Saturday and, and see, you know, how much of the crowd is left and, and what it is. But I do want to pivot quickly before we get into our last segment about the fact that whether or not these protests continue or how long they continue, I think they are indicative of this rupture in society where there is this group of like alienated, angry people who are expressing that anger through this convoy. And those feelings aren't going to go away just because they were sent home and like the consequences of us and how we deal with that and how we try to like heal this rupture and bring along people who, I mean, I think it's actually really, sorry, this is like so tangential, but I think it is really scary to know that there are I saw this thing that was going around where there are people who are are sort of into this, you know, mis- misinformation around COVID who were, for example, spreading inf- misinformation around Ukraine and Russia and about, you know, Trudeau and, and all this stuff. And so this like ecosystem is of misinformation that perpetuates this anger. It's, it's not going away. We don't have any robust social media policy that, you know, addresses this misinformation. We don't have ways of like um, reaching people who have really, you know, really um, internalized a lot of this information and are no longer like accessing quote unquote credible news sources, mainstream media and are getting their news from other places. And so they're, they're almost like unreachable and how we go about repairing that. And uh, I don't, I don't really know what the answer is and I don't really see it being tackled in the way that it needs to be like, this is a really urgent problem for us. Our final segment is on the provincial budget. And um, I just want to tell a little entertaining story because we were deciding, <laughs> we were deciding what to talk about in this podcast. And I was like, has anything happened? And then we we're like, let's talk about the budget. And we are barely talking about the budget because so much has happened. So the provincial budget was tabled. And what does it mean for Calgary? I, I saw a few, uh, some coverage that was saying, you know, largely Calgary's wish list is going unfulfilled. There's only $5 million being allocated for downtown revitalization and lots of other places where we're seeing, uh, you know, Calgary not necessarily getting the money that it needed, including in particular for Calgary transit. And uh, Darren, you alluded to this earlier. I think the federal government put quite a bit of money on the table and said that, you know, they would match provincial funding to sort of keep transit systems alive. And I I don't think that the government's going to be putting, the provincial government's going to be putting forward that matching funding. So um, what are your takes on the provincial budget? You know, is that, is it a good deal for Calgary? Is it a raw deal? What do you think? You know, what's interesting is it's so different now when it comes to asking or using the provincial budget as kind of a leverage point or, or an advantage for, you know, 15 years ago, the, the way Bronconier was able to leverage a upcoming municipal election to force Ed Stelmack into giving, you know, a substantial amount of money into the, uh, the MSI fund, that was a big thing. Mayors had a lot of power to go like, hey, you know, if you don't do this, you know, I'm standing up for Calgarians. And now we're just seeing all that potential and momentum being ripped away from both Edmonton and Calgary, where the provincial government goes, ah, you know, we, you, you kind of got money for the green LRT, you kind of got what you wanted. You know, it doesn't really bother them whether or not they're going to give more money to the cities. Because I guess per our previous conversations on MGA, they can basically now just kind of 
do what they want. And, you know, maybe, maybe the consequences don't really affect them in terms of uh, capital funding or how much they want to give to cities anymore. I'm going to start off my piece by giving Dan McLean a quick clip here. It was a real bad news budget, but I think we should maybe look at the positives because there, the provincial government, there was no tax increase, actually a budget surplus. We've got $200 million for the Deerfoot, $470 million for flood mitigation, $100 million badly needed money for more mental health beds, and kind of just an example for responsible spending. I also heard the finance minister uh, suggest that the book was not closed on more money for downtown uh, revitalization. So, again, I, as, as a statement, I think picking fights sometimes, whether we like it or not, the province is our boss, I guess, as far as municipalities go, and picking fights maybe isn't the best way to get more or get what we want. Councillor McLean does have a little bit of a point here. There is money in the budget for Calgary. But what this comes down to for me is a question of the city's priorities and what the province's priorities and and what sort of political aspect that they want to play. Because let's not fool ourselves. There's there's always a political aspect to this government, probably more so than previous governments. So I think what we're talking about here is not necessarily that Calgary didn't get any money because they did, they got money. And as McLean pointed out, the finance minister isn't closing the door on additional money for Calgary's downtown. The province is still in the middle of a review here of of how they want to play a role in Calgary's downtown revitalization strategy. What it doesn't do is it doesn't meet the city of Calgary's needs. And yeah, I have to agree with Mayor Gondek that the province not ponying up to match rapid housing initiative funds or the transit funding that the federal government offered to cover shortfalls, as we had already talked about, Calgary's facing an $89 million shortfall. Those are real glaring omissions here. But there is additional money for affordable housing in Alberta. There, I mean, the province does have a budget surplus and we know that they're going to use that money probably as we build up to an election in order to secure votes in certain areas. There is money that Calgary got. I don't know that it's really being portrayed as a Calgary-friendly budget, mainly because it didn't match those priorities that the city had and the province went and just did their own game plan. And I think that's what Mayor Gondek and city administration is probably ticked off at more than anything. I mean, that approach to the, that the province took to the budget is really like indicative of, of the relationship we see between the province and the city where there is no real meaningful consultation, where they're not working together as partners, where um, you know they seem to be acting in opposition to each other. And we talked a lot about that in the first segment. And so I will say, like, I mean, it's, it is such a shame for Calgarians who are also Albertans because, I mean, we need these things. We need downtown, re- downtown revitalization to be a priority. I mean, we've been talking about downtown revitalization for years and years and years. We need transit if you want to be considered a world-class city. We need these wrapping housing, rapid housing initiatives. Um, so it's, it's, I think, a real shame that, like, the province is treating the city this way. And I don't know. We'll have to see if it's something that Calgarians 
decide is acceptable in uh, in the provincial election, I guess. Hey, hey, I told you guys that Dan McLean's a, a, a listener now. Hey. Hey, Dan. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he gave me a call after the last uh, after the last episode to say it was it was on his listening list now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who's his favorite? That's what you need to ask him next time. <laughs> I'm sure Probably the guy who just played his clip. <laughs> <laughs> Probably is. Right. No. Uh, hey, all in all, I think the government wanted to do one thing. They wanted to balance the budget. Yeah, and but he lucked out, though. Yeah, you know what? They really did luck out. They lucked out with now $100 plus a barrel oil. Uh, but we knew that oil prices were going up. We knew this about a year ago it is, when it is when it actually started going up. And so, so we knew that better things were ahead. And like I said, I, I think for this government in particular, they're doing that, that election math right now going, okay, where do we got to put money strategically? And and now that we've balanced the budget, which was important to a lot of, well, I would say center, center right, right Albertans. So they knocked that off of their list. They can now go to the ballot box and say, hey, we balanced the budget. But then they put it into their priority areas, areas that they thought were important. And I think that's probably what we'll see in future announcement with, with any of the budget surplus that they intend to get this year. And I feel like, you know, in the NDP in opposition, they may have to change their tune or their, their game plan just a little bit because probably next year's budget is going to be balanced or there's going to be a, some sort of surplus, right? So now they got to kind of compete with that. How do they compete with the city's interests, I guess, and how they kind of incorporate that in their game plan leading up to basically, yeah, next year's the election, right? So yeah. You know, if I can just jump in with one more thing, despite everything that we've said here, there's one big caveat, and I I can't remember if we talked about this in our last episode, but if Premier Kenny doesn't start to play nice with cities, and if he doesn't start to see some of that money flow to cities, uh, even in the way that cities want it, so that it garners a little bit of praise from mayors, in order for Jason Kenney to actually win a substantial uh, majority or a majority in the next election, there has to be a lot of urban ridings that are won. And on this particular track right now, I think he stands to lose more seats than he does gain. Okay, so let's wrap up our segments and move into our quick hits where we like to give you some tidbits of information that you can use to feel smarter in your conversations about municipal politics. Darren, over to you. Right. So let's start off with election disclosures. We're probably going to maybe have a conversation about this a little bit. 60 people didn't file their 2021 election disclosures. So they have until March 11th, but between now and March 11th, they have to do it with a $500 fine, which is actually a lot. Uh, After that, if they do not file by March 11th, they cannot run 
in a municipal election anywhere in Alberta for eight years. Yeah. And I, you know, maybe this is me being ignorant with the, the updated local elections authorities act, but I feel like that's going to be challenged. I feel like that is opening a can of worms that the province probably can't defend when it comes to prohibiting people just because they didn't file a, their disclosure and pay that $500 penalty. I just can't see that going through. It'll be interesting to see. Um, I'm going to skip over the next one on the list because I want to do that one last only because I love it the most. The resilient roofing rebate, you might remember, of course, the big hailstorm in Saddle Ridge prompted the city to offer uh, a resilient roofing rebate. They did it last year. They added money again for 2022. It is already all subscribed and there's now a waiting list for it. So I think on one hand, that's a really good thing that there's a lot of interest um, and maybe more money should have been put in there. A story that kind of came out today, you can read it at livewirecalgary.com. Uh, the province is working with Alpha House and the Calgary Drop-In Centre to have harm reduction sites on or near their premises. Uh, in some of the conversations that I've had with uh, the, the homeless Calgary community, they have said that this is, this is a big step, putting these harm reduction and supervised consumption sites on or near some of these locations. So folks who feel safe or comfortable using these facilities they have immediate access to shelter and shelter services. So, so I think that's actually a big step forward. But the one that I really want to get to, only because I absolutely loved this. Some of you may have seen a couple of weeks ago, Jeremy Farkas, former councillor and former mayoral candidate, Word 11, put out a somewhat innocuous Facebook post about, hey, I'm going to be telling you what I'm going to be doing again in the next few days. And with a provincial election on the horizon, everybody thought he is vying for a seat in the provincial election. And that was going to be the big announcement. And it still very well may be. However, I think he pulled one out or pulled the wool over the eyes of the lefty Twitter hating folks out there who, who were just hating on a potential UCP run because instead what he's doing is what amounts to a marathon a day starting in California, coming all the way up the Pacific coast trail. And he's doing it to help raise $50,000 for Calgary big brothers and big sisters. So I, for one, absolutely love that fake out. Well done, Jeremy Farkas. Well done. Well, as always, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to talk about municipal politics, there's lots of ways you can do so. Make sure to join Darren and special guests on his Twitter spaces at 5 p.m. You can go to at livewire underscore DK on Twitter and you'll find him uh, every Friday. And you can also follow us all on Twitter. Darren again is at livewire underscore DK. Jeremy's at JZ from Calgary. And I'm at Esmahan YYC. And you can tweet us your hot takes, your you know, fun facts, anything you want really about municipal politics. Um, we do want to give a special thanks to our podcast sponsors, Calgary-based startup Eat4Later. Check them out at eat4later.com. 
and Gateway Association Calgary and their new EDI employment hub, gatewaytodiversity.ca. Thank you to our sponsors and thank you so much for joining us and for listening. Have a great day. Bye.